I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? What do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Josephine Tynes, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast. Thank you so much for coming out. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on this uh, beautiful Saturday afternoon here in South Florida. You and I have known each other for a while, and I remember talking to you, I think we were talking about a case early in your tenure with Karen Renaissance, and you were a primary therapist there. I think you had sort of moved into Jennifer Alford's role, and she was this she passed away recently, we all know, and um, very tragically uh, died. And she was this really big personality of a woman who did the stealing, shopping, and hoarding group there, <laughs> the gambling group. And she was known for it and had a big reputation for it. And, you know, when she left the agency, you kind of filled in and did that right behind her. Big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. And made it your own. Yeah, Jen, Jen was actually um, one of my mentors and I remember meeting her and I was like, if there is a female clinician that I want to aspire to be like, it is totally Jen. She was like the perfect mix of like tough, but like surprisingly compassionate, no nonsense and like very direct and the patients like feared and respected her. And as like a 25 year old starting out as a therapist she was like exactly what i like aspired to be and so when she left and robert johnson approached me and asked if i would take over to the group i like terrifyingly said yes and really struggled i think with figuring out how to make it my own but also how to like keep the same like cadence that jen had kind of created like within the group and it had like the certain pace and like people really look forward to it and had a lot of energy and so i appreciate you uh saying that you know i was able to kind of step into those shoes because it was definitely something that was on my mind the group was on thursdays and like wednesday would roll around and i was like oh shit like what am i gonna do to uh make this a really great group so it was definitely one of the most memorable parts of the beginning of my career I sat in with you for the group when I was orienting. I spent time there as a primary therapist, and I got to kind of sit in and watch you do what you do. It was definitely you. You were yourself. And then there were a couple of things that were Jen, and you could hear it. And one in particular was somebody was talking about something they had done. They were referring to shoplifting, essentially, and they said, I took it. And you corrected her. You said, you didn't take it, you stole it. 
And I was like, that sounded very gen. Like maybe it's just Josie. When you hear someone say something like that, and people listening to this might think, oh, that's not nice or not therapeutic or not kind. But I think the gift of that is that when you actually listen to it and you see the interaction firsthand, it is surprisingly compassionate and kind and really not shaming or confrontational at all. It was just an honest correction because if you're going to actually address that behavior, we can't sugarcoat it. People who steal don't take things, they steal them. It's funny how the beginning of my career, you mentioned like that honest correction, right? And like the level of transparency and like as my career has gone on, I've actually stepped uh, doing a fair amount of trauma work and trauma-informed training for businesses, but also for my clients as well. And one of the things that I really believe is important when we're working with trauma survivors too is that honest correction and that transparency. And I really believe transparency is synonymous with safety, right? And I think like in order to facilitate any kind of meaningful change, we have to feel safe. So it's interesting that you bring up how that interaction sounds confrontational, but really is actually like very compassionate. It is. And I think when you do the harder work, I I do trauma work myself. I do grief and loss. I do grief and loss where it intersects with trauma. It's It's a very specialized thing. That conversation is very important because... Again, we live in this very death-denying culture, right? So we're talking about one element of something that's stigmatized. We have to be able to talk about these things honestly, or we're having the same conversation with the client that everyone else is having, which is limited and edited, where they feel like the stigmatized aspects of what's going on with them have to remain unspoken. Yeah, and I think too, right? It's like I trust that like you're capable of getting well so i trust that like i can be honest with you to help you identify that you're angry right and like also saying like i think you can handle that like i think you can handle the truth and i think when people have been through really awful things like loss you know someone who's in treatment and is stealing in treatment right like obviously something terrible probably happened in that person's life for them to end up in that situation right you're saying like I care enough about you that like I'm going to be honest and transparent when like other people have treated you probably with like kid gloves because they're afraid. Like you said, you know, the rest of the world is afraid to be honest. The rest of the world is afraid to say like, so you're you're angry at someone who passed away, you know, and like maybe someone else's thought is like, oh, and like I've been kind of angry at someone who passed away, too. Right. Or whatever it might be. But, you know, to just be able to say, like, I believe that you're capable of hearing my honest feedback. And I believe that you're also capable of getting well. It's something I think like, I don't know, maybe when I was greener, I was like kind of afraid to do a little bit. Like, oh, I don't want to offend you or, oh, you've been through something bad. I don't want to make you sad. But it's like, no, like we're going to like get in this hole you have like in your life and we're going to dig out of it together. And like part of that is like, I'm going to be transparent with you. And like, I'm not afraid of your emotions and maybe some of the other people in your life are. Well, even the correction around taking versus stealing, you can imagine that if this is a problem that I have and it's stigmatized, right? So maybe at home, it seems like such a strange or improper problem to have that we don't speak of it. So using words like take instead of steal maybe makes us all feel a little bit more comfortable about this is going on. 
And when you take that away and you're telling somebody, I can accept you exactly as you are, but we need to be clear about what we're talking about. We're not talking about taking, we're talking about stealing. You steal things. And if you're a person who steals things, we should probably be able to just have that conversation. You want to have a conversation with someone who knows what the behavior is called. You know, we don't want to have that same conversation with people who are either going to shame you and give you names, call you a thief or all this kind of thing, or, or someone who's not going to talk about it at all. But we need to call it what it is. Totally. Totally. You stole it. So, like, let's talk about how we can help you not steal anymore. If that's something you don't want to do. If you want to, if you want to change that behavior, if you want to eradicate that maladaptive behavior, let's like call it stealing, and then like here's the course of treatment because I'm trained to treat people who compulsively steal. So like here's the course of treatment for that, and like let's move on that path. Like let's go in that direction. Maybe we'll teach you to steal less <laughs> or steal better. Maybe you can steal better. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should be better better at stealing. So. You moved into this role, big shoes to fill, very dynamic and respected woman, Jen Alfred. And you really mastered it, made it your own. I know that you were very respected in that role at Karen. And it was an interesting thing about you because clearly you are a person of ambition, a person who values their own growth, and strives for more. Because I think a lot of people would have been really happy to just have been successful doing that feeling and feeling like hey i did it i have this niche here everybody respects me and regards me highly but you kept going and i think it was a little while after you were had started doing that group and really kind of formed a, a strong presence for yourself there that you went back for further graduate school yeah yeah i'm like the kind of person that i always want to be learning and at times in my life, that's certainly been like a little bit maladaptive. And like, I want to strive in such a way that maybe I neglect like some of the important people in my life. Right. So like part of my own process, because I think we always should be doing our own work. And part of my own process has been like, how do I continue to challenge myself and grow and strive and be ambitious and be like a present wife and a present daughter and a present mother and a present employer or employee and like you know how do i wear these different hats and not like focus so much on accomplishments that i let everything else go by the wayside it's pretty amazing because you were full-time employed at a job that really requires a lot of attention and married and in the midst of all of that flying back and forth to rhode island yeah yeah i went back to brown to get a, a master's degree healthcare mba actually Pretty impressive. I'm sure the workload at a Brown graduate program is not light. No, definitely not. They probably kept you pretty busy there. Totally. <laughs> How often would you have to fly up? Every three months, we would go up for about like seven to 10 days. And the reason that I'll jump into this, if that's okay, like the reason I, I chose a business degree, everyone told me to get a PhD. No one told me to get a business degree. And I was working in this environment, right, that we're talking about. I was a primary therapist at Karen Renaissance, and there were all these different parts of treatment that I didn't necessarily understand, like the financial component, the staffing component, culturally, development-wise, it was a nonprofit, right? And there were like all these intersections of like when a patient navigates through the milieu, right, like the system that is a treatment center. 
I thought, how can I effectively like treat these patients and their families if I don't understand all this other stuff that's going on in this place, right? Like if I want to advocate for scholarship dollars, I need to understand how nonprofit finance works. So if I really want to advocate for a patient and I really want to push back, like I should be able to read a balance sheet. Like I should be able to understand like how all of the inner workings of this organization function together so that I can appropriately advocate for my patients and, and families. And I, I went against the grain and um, I went and got a business degree. And now that's like the trendy thing to do, right? But like at the time, it totally wasn't. People looked at me and they're like, why don't you just get a PhD? Like, why don't you go somewhere in Florida? Like, why don't you do all these things? And I felt really, really passionate about my decision, which I think is why the workload was manageable like i don't think it was like logically manageable but i think passion overrides logic uh sometimes and that was certainly the case i think there's a thing about ambition and vision that often people who have them can be misunderstood by people around them especially if the pathway towards success is understood through the lens of what somebody else has done. And then they see you taking this kind of road less traveled. And then the question that everyone around you asks, oh, Josie's a phenomenal clinician and very successful at this and wants to advance herself and get further education. She should get a PhD. What are you doing with a business degree? And if you don't share in the vision, you don't know why she's doing that. And you did though. It was clear and you were thinking about things that other people around you probably weren't thinking. Totally. And I think like people guessing what you're doing like isn't a bad thing, right? Like as someone in in recovery and as someone whose primary background is as a clinician, I was like taught to be super transparent. We were talking about that earlier in our conversation, right? Like in order to help clients, I need to be transparent. But in business, like when I'm working toward a vision or I'm working toward a goal, I have to understand my goal and like my trusted confidants have to understand my goal. The people that I run things by that like really know me and like I respect and they respect me, but like, you know, the guy two doors down the hall from me like maybe doesn't get it and is like, what is she doing? Like, why would she do that? And part of my journey too has been learning how to be like okay with that. You know, that like their opinion of what I should do can be different than my opinion of what I value or what I'm striving toward or what I'm doing. And that doesn't mean that the guy down the hall is wrong and I'm right or I'm wrong and he's right. It just means that like we're different people with different visions and that's totally okay. As you're talking to the guy who's like recording conversations in his office, you know, <laughs> clearly it's off the beaten path, right? Who's also down the hall for me. <laughs> sure. Who's also down the hall. We're doing different things. Yeah. But I understand that. And I think there's something to it that you really have to kind of create a path that's uniquely yours. And to do that, you'll often do things that will be misunderstood by the people around you. And it's okay. It's all all right. Uh, clearly, it worked out for you. I think, to me, the point, and even really my bringing it up, was to sort of, that's an incredible thing to do, that you already had success and were kind of blazing a trail for yourself that was clearly going to take you in a, a positive direction. You had already done it and was already successful. And going back to school, because you had this other idea about becoming 
about merging business into behavioral health and that somehow or other you were going to do something with that. Was it clear to you what you wanted to do to go into management or consulting? What were you thinking? So in my Brown um, essay, like, right, essay sounds like elementary school. In my Brown, you know, application paper, they made you write out, like, what do you want to do with this degree? And my goal was, I said, I want to be the clinical director at Karen Renaissance. And, you know, Robert was our clinical director at the time, and he read you know, the paper and he wrote a recommendation and like all the people knew that were around me, like that was my goal, right? And I ended up achieving a similar goal, not that exact goal, like shortly thereafter and and far surpassing that too, um, as far as like moving my way up um, the organizational ladder, right? And- What was your actual title? uh, My most recent title before I went into private practice, I was executive director of Karen of Florida. So I oversaw um, all of Karen Renaissance and Ocean Drive. So Karen Florida's clinical and um, operational components. So pretty remarkable to go back to where you and I started, right? And, you know, those conversations. And at that time, the priority is, can I do the stealing hoarding and shopping group and be effective at that and now it's i'm running the entire operation both facilities pretty pretty amazing stuff totally and like i don't take myself too seriously i don't think you can like there has to be some level of irreverence in order to make it through life i think right and so when i was offered the job I called my husband after I accepted it and I called my husband and I just started laughing, like just hysterically laughing. And he's like, what is wrong with you? You know? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like I just, you know, I got sober when I was 21 and I like just wanted to finish at community college, you know, like I just wanted to get my associate's degree and like have the five F's that were on my transcript. Cause like I couldn't manage to withdrawal from a class like that was far too complicated or I was like far too in my own shit to even achieve that which was like online we're talking like 2007 right like that's online and I'm like I couldn't even do that and now you know someone entrusts me with all of this responsibility so I was laughing because it was pretty remarkable it's a massive responsibility totally I mean you're talking about a top flight organization strong programs, doing great work, tradition of high standards, big shoes to fill. Totally, and then like all the people that I looked up to, I now was responsible for, right? So there's this jump that happened, right? Where I was, you know, line staff, clinical staff, and then I became clinical director of Ocean Drive. And then from there, the executive director position and these people that like, I revered like their clinical skills, then they were reporting to me, right? And like, I still do, like they're amazing clinicians, but it's a weird, it's like a weird dynamic to kind of wrap your head around. And, um, you know, if I had any advice to give to anyone who wants to move up an organizational ladder is, you know, don't overthink it and like, don't take yourself too seriously because there will be more than enough pressure to succeed. And putting that additional pressure on yourself doesn't really get you anywhere. I had a martial arts instructor who I feel like said it in a way that I live by it. He said, I take my work very seriously. I don't take myself very seriously. It's perfect. I always like that and try to keep that philosophy for 
life, really. For sure. And I think, you know, the other thing that sticks out that I want to make sure I say in our conversation is, you know, the only thing that I did consistently, aside from working hard on all the really obvious things, from mastering the stealing group to, you know, my promotion to executive director and then now in private practice as a new mom is whatever your goal is, like your long-term goal, keep that somewhere in your mind and then map, like work backward with all of the things that you need to do in order to achieve that big goal. And the only thing you need to focus on is what's in front of you. Whatever that next thing is, if you're having a particularly tough day, if it's like going in and like not being really upset or you have a headache and you just want to make it through the day, like if that's what you need to do that day to make it through that day, that's all you need to focus on with keeping your end goal in mind. Like we really trip ourselves up, I think, when we're ambitious and like I have to do this or I have to do that. Like success is a long series of really small personal challenges and good decisions. And sometimes the personal challenge, like if we're going through some really challenging stuff in our life is getting out of bed and getting to work. Yeah, it can be. For sure. Well, it's the same, I think, to something like this. That it's podcasting that I'm trying. It's, it's not really about whether or not you get a massive response to the first episode that you put out and a bunch of people like it on Facebook or not. It's about whether or not I can continue to put out content consistently over a long period of time that's of some quality, right? That will be more of a determinant of whether or not this thing is successful over the long haul. So I think it's really about believing in yourself and what it takes to kind of stay on a path to become successful more so than getting hung up on any one result along the way. Because it's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to be distracted, right? Because not everything is going to go well. No, no. And, and failure is really a decision to stop, right? Like we have plenty of failures, plural, on our journeys, whatever those are, if that's professionally, personally, whatever that looks like. But the people who fail, stop. That can look like, you know, moving forward can look like pivoting. It can look like reevaluating your career. It can look like, you know, if you make f- terrible financial choices, I again, focusing on, you know, process disorders and spending, stealing, hoarding, all that. I use this analogy a lot, like bankruptcy is even a, a strategic move sometimes, right? So like the things that we're most ashamed of that are challenges that we all face, I think, especially as Americans, like if you stop, that's a failure. If you keep going, that's a lesson. And the difference in that is your mindset. The actual events aren't any different. It's how you look at it and what you choose to do. We all get knocked on our faces. It's like, how do you stand up? Or do you choose to stand up? I was working with a martial arts instructor. And I was working one-on-one with this guy. And when you do pad work, and it gets to like, a more advanced level, you really have to have your full concentration on it. You can't, it's not like other types of workouts because you're being given a series of instructions and they're longer and longer and longer. So it becomes about being focused and retaining. And there was a day that I was off and I was visibly off because my mind was on something that had happened previous day 
at work in private practice, and I was just troubled by this. And I talked to him about it. I brought it up. And he gave me this. So I was really trying to make an excuse for the fact that I was off and not paying attention. What I got was a surprising lesson that I did not see coming. And he said, we call this a champion's mind, Eric. There's always going to be people that reject or that don't want to see it succeed or whatever, they'll criticize, whatever it is, that that's always going to be there. You cannot, you cannot allow that to dictate what you do. You always, you have to be able to put those things aside and continue moving forward. And we call this a, a champion's mind. You know, the ability to kind of stay focused on what I'm doing no matter what happens. And when you think about the experience of someone who fought professionally, like in Japan, and what it would be like to hear this from somebody who maybe had, you know, won in front of thousands of people or lost in front of thousands of people, it means something different than when I, you know, read it from like an inspirational life coaching <laughs> book or something because that is real adversity. In that moment, it made me think. And it's funny, like these things, these failings, these frustrations, these struggles that we have, in the moments when they occur, they may seem like the biggest thing ever. It may feel like failure. It may feel like the end of something. Now, if I look back on that moment, I could barely even really remember what happened, like the details of it. And the further I get away from it, the less visceral it is until it really just no longer matters at all because, you know, right around the corner, there'll be something else that I could fuck up much worse. <laughs> and then I'll forget about the last one or something, you know. But that's that's what it is. I think it's really, it's all a test of your endurance, right? The ability to just keep going. And you really have overcome a lot. I mean, I'm sure when you look back at your, 21-year-old self that was doing all the things that people do to get sober. Do you ever imagine you'd be Ivy League school graduate and in leadership in one of the top behavioral health programs in the country? No, it's funny. You know, I was thinking about our talk today and I was trying to remember back to when I was young. Like if I had ever thought about what I, I thought my success would be like when I was an adult, right? Like air quotes, an adult. I still don't feel like I'm an adult, but you know, I I never really thought about it. Like I didn't think about monetary success. Like I didn't think about achievement. I just always thought about challenging myself. Like that has been the one constant theme and like what's in front of me. And when I was 21, no, I didn't think that at all. And like when I went to graduate school, um, to get my master's in social work at FAU, all I wanted was to be able to have a job as a primary therapist at Karen Renaissance. Like that was like, I was like, if I do that in life, like I've made it, that's it. I did. And then it was just kind of like, okay, so like what's next? And I think if we look back on overcoming adversity in each of our own lives, it's like a series of what's next? What can I do next? Like, how can I challenge myself? What's the next goal? And allowing things to happen organically and kind of to see 
what interests me as time goes on. So to answer your question, I had no idea. I just wanted to get out of like a sober house in South Florida, you know, and like get my own apartment. Like that was my goal at 21. I certainly didn't think that this is where I would be at almost 33. Amazing. It's wild. It's really wild. And so you made it there, executive director, right? There's other goals that we're accomplishing too in personal life, having a child, making a family. So that also we have to kind of correct for those things too. We have to to make it all sync, right? Yeah, and, and I, you know, when I stepped down from my position as executive director, my reasoning, you know, that I shared with, with my team was really clear and that was as a mom, I could give 50% to my son and 100% to my team as an executive director or I could give... 50% as executive director and 100% to my son and my husband. I say son, son, husband, family, couple that all together. And I'm not the kind of person to show up and give 50% to anything. And so the path wasn't clear, but the choice was clear. And the choice was that I needed to pivot and correct and change so that I could still achieve what's meaningful to me professionally, right? Which is like growing and challenging myself and evolving. And I could be there for my son, be there for my husband, like be there for my family. Um, So I made the decision to step down, which was a really, really tough choice and definitely the right choice. I, you know, I'm in private practice now. I also consult, I consult for Karen. You know, I do business consulting and and, um, I see clients individually as well. And, you know, that provided an opportunity for someone else to step up and achieve their professional goals as an executive, which is awesome and enabled me to, you know, be really, really present for my son and do telehealth and like work from home part of the time and come out from a session and see him and focus on different goals than I think I had previously had, which was to be a really present person in my family, which is really, really important to me. That's uh, incredible. When you look back on all the sacrifices that you made to get where you were and to have achieved such a goal, uh, to have gotten where you've gotten, and to be willing to move on from that to some other version of yourself professionally because you wanted to make that sacrifice. You were willing to in order to be the best version of both, a fulfilling career, but also to be a present mother and wife and family member. And I come from a long line of successful women. And I'm talking like uh, scary successful, like intimidatingly successful, like CEOs, officers and companies, attorneys, like people who are running you know, big companies and like steering big ships, right? And every one of those women in my life and in my family have said to me, because they know how I am and they know how I challenge myself, do not sacrifice your health and do not sacrifice your family for your professional career because you can always achieve, you can never get the time back and you can never get your health back once it's gotten to a place that it's, you know, irreparable. And those women in my family have stopped me like at different times in my career when I'm really like trudging the road ahead, like probably a little too hard and said, 
you got to slow down, you know, and I, I brushed it off. And the second that like I met my son, like the second that he was born, um, being present, like had a different meaning. And I didn't know what I think that meant at the time. Like, obviously, I didn't know what that meant for me professionally, but I did know that, you know, they say your life changes forever and it totally does. It absolutely does. Yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. For sure. Like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. It really puts in perspective a lot of other things because if you embrace being a parent and it's what you want, you'll feel differently about everything else. And all of a sudden being a parent becomes kind of more important than other things. More important really than anything. And it makes other things that seem big appear kind of small Mm -hmm. by comparison. It took me a minute, and I think it often does with fathers, to really adjust to it. I, I mean, I loved him, and I was so excited that he was here. I remember the day, we were probably about like maybe two months into it, and I was into the rhythm of you know, new dad, managing the sleep and learning all the, the skills. I never really had been around small children until I had one. But there's this one day I came home from work and I went right up to his room and I'm looking at him in the crib and he looked up at me and he smiled, a big <laughs> smile. And I got it, like that he'd been waiting for me to get home. I From that day on, I always imagined I was... Uh, every day I was waiting to see him and I always imagined that he was waiting to see me and that's how it is. That's how it is. He's off at college right now and I, I'm thinking that thought of when do I get to see the boy? When do I get to talk to him? When do I, when will I call him? What is he doing right now? And uh, I, I think about him all the time and still and I'll, I guess I'll probably do that for the rest of my life. Hopefully. Hopefully you do that for the rest of your life. I think that's the most incredible thing you know and the other thing that kind of went through my mind when i was making the decision to as you said like everything i had worked for kind of like cast to the side at least on paper right was i'm also me right and like what that means is i'm always going to challenge myself and i need to be working towards something so i also knew that doing telehealth from home and and not challenging myself in a business from a business perspective like wasn't going to be enough and like I was also very conscious and I am conscious of the fact that I don't want to lose myself in the process of like being a mom right so the decision to start my own business was I think the only way that I could see myself honoring like that part of me and like that part of my personality and honoring my son in the way that you know you described where like I get to see him and like he's excited to see me and I'm excited to see him and like I'm present and I'm fresh and I'm excited. And so once the path came clear, became clear, the decision to walk down that path was was easy. Yeah, you still have ambition still, right? For sure. And doing the consulting work and all that. I guess if you conceptualize it as giving up something, it's a lot to give up because you did so much to get to that point and achieved such a high goal, mm-hmm. you know, to be the executive director of this, again, you know, top flight behavioral health organization that's really among the very best in the country, right? And to get there and to do it for a little while and say, 
Now I'm going to go and do something else. A lot of people wouldn't have done it. And I look at it as like not not even giving it up, but as working towards something different, right? Like I think that, you know, I've, I've, I've thought this over the last few months as I'm in this in this new phase of my life, in this new journey. And if I hadn't experienced all the things that I had experienced leading up to that point, to like that decision to pivot, I wouldn't have been prepared to pivot in the way that I have. I wouldn't have made the decision that I made. I wouldn't be interested in the things that I'm interested in. I wouldn't be as busy as I am. Like all of that had to happen in order for me to be where I am, like sitting right now talking to you in this moment. And I firmly believe that, absolutely believe that. When I imagined that we would be having this conversation, I knew this would be an easy one, right? Because you're a talker and you're an engaging person and I knew you would have a lot to say. My hope, I guess my larger hope would be that in the body of work, that this would be something maybe inspirational to these younger women that are coming up in recovery and trying to accomplish things that they could see you and see how far you went from being this 21 year old living in halfway house and <laughs> to being the executive director of this, you know, again, top flight behavioral health organization and being a mom and being willing to leave the job to go off and do your own entrepreneurial thing and that you can really do all of it for sure that if you're if you have an ambition to do it and believe in yourself and you do it wisely you can really do it all because you maintain a relationship with karen renaissance i know that you're still doing you know executive coaching with them and working with the staff and that seems to be going very well for you as well so you, you maintain they're happy to have you involved in that way and you're happy. So it all works for everybody and no one is not happy. You hope that people will see that in you and that somewhere out there there's a another 21-year-old trying to complete their shift at Applebee's so they can pay <laughs> the rent at the, you know, the, the transitional housing. And you know maybe when I get a year sober, I can be a tech at this place and or counselor assistant at this place. And and they're looking at you and they're like, uh, and you know what, in 10 years, I'm gonna run one of these things. I'm gonna run one of these things and I'm gonna have a family and I'm gonna do all this other stuff as well. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I think any like anyone can do it, right? I think that the misconception that we have, and I think especially as women, I'm gonna like take the opportunity to talk about women for a second, cause I am a woman. So like, and it's a good platform to do that. Um, I think as women, we think, you know, and I don't know if men are like this, but like, she can do that, but I can't. And like, here are the reasons why, or like that's unique to her. And if I were to tell, you know, all the 21 year old women finishing their shifts at Applebee's, right, to pay their rent, it's like, don't sell yourself short. We as clinicians, women and men, like sell ourselves short, right? We give away, we undercharge for our work. We give away our time. We don't value it. And we feel bad when we have boundaries sometimes, right? Like sometimes we feel bad, I think, as people who are helping. We tell people that no is a complete sentence, but we forget to apply that to ourselves, right? And in order to succeed, you have to also have self-preservation. And that took me a really long time to learn. And one of my 
you know, my most recent mentors told me the first thing you book is, is time for yourself and book a two hour block because you can't be creative in an hour when you cut your time short. And that's non-negotiable. It doesn't matter what someone needs in that two hours. That is non-negotiable because if you want to grow, you want to evolve, you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to have time to be creative. And in order to have time to be creative, you need to shut down all the outside noise and you need to slow down. No one ever got anywhere good by rushing. So that's what I would say to the younger version of myself. Take your time. Totally, totally. Like, and ask questions and you deserve a seat at the table, right? Like I was the youngest female to step into an executive role and I oversaw a team of all men, right? And like, that's just the way that like the chips fell, right? Like it wasn't planned that way, but you know, you deserve a seat at the table and you deserve to be heard. And, you know, as women, I think we overcompensate unintentionally for the fact that we're women, but like, you don't need to overcompensate for anything. Like be who you are and show up. And you don't need to like highlight the fact that you're the only woman there. Just like have that presence, be there and speak your mind and learn and grow and challenge yourself and surround yourself by other women who or with other women who will challenge you to grow and who will tell you the truth. All starts with realizing that you are enough. For sure. For sure. Which sounds cheesy, right? Like that's like. It sounds cheesy, but often these things become cliches because they're true. Totally. And often sort of the simplest statements are the ones that are most repeated because they are consistently true. I was a person who probably could have gone into private practice like 10, 15 years ago. And it was really what I wanted to do. And I was hemmed by fears and certain insecurities around it and needing to support a family and all these sort of things. So the risk was, in fact, real. But I watched other people, my cohorts, go on and have these successful careers in private practice. And there was limiting belief around myself. There's this part of you that's like, I could do that. I know that I could, but I'm not doing that. Why am I not doing that? And I'm afraid and all these things. And I remember talking to somebody about it and explaining my fears and my frustration because you have a longing like that for long enough. You can become resentful about it. And he said, you know what your problem is? You're waiting around to get picked. You're waiting around to get discovered. Like someone's going to come along and be like, Eric, why aren't you doing private practice? Here's an office for you and clients and everything. We're just going to go set you up because this is what the world should deliver you. You have to realize like, no one's coming. No, 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 you're not. No one's coming. You're not getting picked. If you want it, you have to go claim it and put yourself in the position for these things to happen. And if you do it, and you put the work in and the effort in and you're the best version of yourself, you'll get there. Yeah. And I think we all make the jump no matter how much we plan or don't plan, right? Like in my situation, that was not my plan. That's not what I knew I was going to do. We all jump off of whatever metaphorical ledge it is. Even if we think our parachute's like really intact, like when you go to start a business, like your parachute's half broken and like it's got big holes in it and you don't know it. And like you will definitely fall. And that's okay. Like that's how you learn. I think to your point, not being picked, I would say your parachute's going to be broken no matter when you do it. Prepare, like be smart financially, save, 
be strategic with finding an office and like all of that kind of stuff. And also, you know, one thing that I've done really well, I think, in my career is I've never made emotionally driven decisions. I've wanted to make emotionally driven decisions and I've been real angry at times or real resentful or really sad or pissed or feeling like I was overlooked or something was unfair and like I want to take my toys and go home constantly, right? It's being a human. But I had people around me and still have people present tense around me that I can whine to and have my tantrum and then collect my thoughts and make an informed evidence-based decision about my life, which I think is key to being successful and not waiting to get picked to your point. No, it's, it's great stuff. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about jumping off the cliff, the proverbial ledge, right? Like I know you're a big uh, UFC fan, as yeah. am I, and we yeah. talk about these things. And uh, yeah, I'm thinking about Francis Ngannou, right? <laughs> Leaving the salt mines of Cameroon and crossing the desert and then crossing the ocean, you know, to, to get to France where he ended up in jail and, you know, all of these things. That's a guy who really leapt off the cliff to go <laughs> pursue his dream to be like the heavyweight champion of the world. I don't think my move from working in a, a, a nice program to being in private practice was really like jumping off much of a cliff. It wasn't like a big cliff I jumped off of, you know. But there's fear. You have to confront our fears. If you don't and you limit yourself, you always kind of will wonder what if. And, and I think that's that's the story, right, of taking risks and where it pays off and that kind of thing. It's really great to see what you've done. And I think there can never be enough role models for other people. And I've worked in behavioral health care a, a while now, 25 years or, or more, substance abuse treatment, different centers and private practice and all these different things. And there can never be enough role models for these young women to give them something to aspire to to create what is possible for them and to be able to dream big. And I can't think of really like a better example of that than what you've accomplished and where you're at right now. When I think about this conversation and what you hope it might do for somebody else or who might hear it, that's kind of what I hope we can do here today. And I think we've done it. I hope we have. I you did your part, you know? <laughs> I think we've done it, and I, I hope someone will hear that and think, I could do what this woman's doing. You know, she did it. Maybe maybe I could do it, too. Well, thank you. Thank you for thank you for the compliment. I think you've complimented me a couple times in our conversation, and I haven't said thank you once. So, you know, I want to say You're very that. entitled. <laughs> really very entitled. Very entitled. Very entitled. You know, and I think the other thing I would say, too, right, kind of to think of inspiring someone is, a lot of people think being a good clinician is enough. And I really think like education, especially for women, education is the one thing that no one can ever take from you. So if you want to be in leadership, if you want to be an executive, if you want to run an organization, get a business education too. Never stop learning. It's tremendously important. Right. Well, clearly, right? You've demonstrated. So again, you know, Josie, thank you so much for coming in and spending a little time here. I appreciate it. I think this was a good one. Thanks, Eric. I do too. I hope so. So I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>